The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. I invite you to please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And today we wrap up this great chapter in the letter of 1 Corinthians where Paul has been addressing an issue in the church at Corinth and he addresses all varying stages and seasons of life. And we've already had three sermons, uh, this will make four, in this chapter. And there is so much in this chapter, these 40 verses. I mean, we could be here for really for months. And so I want us to pick up speed, and we're going to cover the whole chapter today, uh, because if I don't pick up speed in this book in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be here for eight years. And I would like for us to kind of get into more of the Bible as well. And so I want us to really keep going through this great book. And what we're going to see again today is like Paul does and everything he's preaching and everything he's showing us in this great book is that Paul keeps bringing us back to Jesus. And this is what Christianity is. It's all about Jesus. And not just in theory, but in reality. And it's the heart and task of the Christian to look at our lives and think, how does Jesus change this about me? How does the resurrection and the crucifixion of Jesus change the way I think? How does the resurrection of Jesus change the way I live? How, how do I, in this season of life, this stage of life, how do I make much of Jesus? And today's passage is calling us to think about singleness and to think about marriage and to think about even widowhood and how do I honor Jesus in this season of life? That whether you're single or married, eternity looms. And guys, think about it. Singleness and marriage and widowhood, these are all seasons, They're just all seasons. And we're all, most of us will experience all three of them. If you're married today, you were single at one point, most likely. And statistically, most people in this room will get married. And then all of us die. And if you're married, most likely one of the spouses will die before the other and go home to be with the Lord. So all three of these seasons we've either been in, are in, or we will experience. And then we enter into the unending season, the perpetual Christmas with Christ. The new heavens, the new earth will be with Jesus forever. But what Paul's calling us to today is we need to be adjusted to whether we're single or married, that eternity looms. And as we read these words today, we'll begin in verse 6, the great reminder to us, these all come to us, not just in the authority of the Apostle Paul, but in the authority of Jesus himself. And so let's stand in honor of Christ and hear from the Spirit of Christ and the power of Christ, beginning in verse 6. And we'll read all the way to verse 40, and so don't lock your legs or anything, I don't want you to pass out. Verse 6, and the Spirit says, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now skip down to 25. Now concerning the betrothed. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of the world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong as it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries is betrothed as well and who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, now would you send the spirit and to do what only you can do. Lord, I trust your spirit to be at work now and to apply these scriptures more than I trust anything I'm going to say. So Lord, would you help? Would you send the illuminating power of the spirit and would Jesus be made much of? Would sins be repented of? Would saints be encouraged? And will we all look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith? So now, Lord, be exalted among us. And it's in your mighty name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, I think it's been probably about two to three sermons in a row that I've mentioned. I you know, gave a little story at the beginning, and I mentioned the rockets the last few times, so I figured, why not go for the sweep this time, and I'll bring them up again. You know, we went to, Natalie and I went to a game uh, a few weeks back, and we're leaving Toyota Center, and the traffic is crazy. There is wild construction all over downtown Houston, and just to get out of the parking lot, it took like 15 minutes to get out of the parking lot. And then finally, I don't know if it was my phone or her phone was dead, and it came on, and I said, hey, let's, I don't, since there's road, these weird road closures, I don't know where we're headed, will you just put Tomball in, and I, I just want to try to get back to 45 the best way possible. She said, yes, got it. 
And so we leave, we use Google Maps, it puts in where we're headed, and it says, go down you know, a couple blocks and take a left. And it's all the one-way streets, it's all really complicated, so we take the left. And every road's jam-packed. There's traffic everywhere. And then we keep going you know, a couple more miles and take another left. Like, all right. And then we keep doing all these turns. And finally, I mean, we're in all these major congested roads. And then finally, we turn on this one road where there are no cars. And that was concerning to me. <laughs> because everywhere else we had been, there were cars everywhere. And I don't think I'm Moses, and we're about to, like, go through, you know, Washington Avenue with no traffic. I mean, I don't know what's happening on some of these roads. And then finally, we start driving more. And all of a sudden, Google says over the phone, over the Bluetooth stuff, your destination is on the left. Now, I know we didn't drive through a teleportation device. So we were not in Tomball. I'm like, what happened? Why are we? She goes, oh, I put Toyota Center in on accident. We're back at Toyota Center. Like, it's funny now. After 15 minutes in the parking garage, 20 minutes driving around in a circle around downtown Houston, it was unbelievable. We arrived at the right place, according to Google. But it was the wrong place. We, we put in what was wrong, Google thinks it's right, and that's where we headed. We arrived at the right place, but it was wrong. And when I think about the Corinthian church, they are arriving at the right place, but it's wrong. They have put in some kind of teaching. They have put in a different kind of theology, and it's taken them right where it's going to take them, and it's wrong. What's amazing to me about this chapter, these 39 verses, is all needed because of one verse. One sentence of false teaching has gotten traction in the Corinthian church, and now Paul is having to unravel all of the implications and all the consequences of that idea, and it takes 39 verses to unravel that toxic ripple effect of verse 1. What's the false teaching? It was verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they said something to Paul. Paul is quoting them, and he's going to fix what they're saying. It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. So that is a teaching that had gotten popular in the church. It had gotten so popular that people are thinking, maybe we should get divorced. If that's more spiritual, let's get divorced. If you're not supposed to have marital intimacy, let's just end this thing. And you can see Paul saying, no, stay how you are. And this is why engaged people are saying, maybe we should break off our engagement. And this is why widowers and, and the widowed folks are saying, you know, I desire to get remarried, but if that's more spiritual, I guess I shouldn't do it. One sentence is all it took. And now Paul spends 39 to fix this in the Corinthian church. Doctrine and teaching in the life of a church affect the culture of the church, the sociology of the church. They always go hand in hand. A lot of times we need to unlearn things. This is what Paul's doing. He, he's trying to get them to unlearn verse 1 and then relearn and learn biblically verses 2 to 40. And this is a lot of following Jesus. And then we need to unlearn things that we're bringing in today. We need to unlearn baggage. We need to unlearn tradition. We need to unlearn some of these things and go back to what do the scriptures actually teach. And since that teaching got so much traction, people aren't sure what to do. People aren't sure how to operate. And so Paul's going to address them. He's going to address the married. He's going to address the engaged. He's going to address the widowers. And he's going to address those who are still single. And what we have to understand about this passage, and I just want to lay it out at the front because I'm not going to be able to cover everything in here. And there's probably situations in your life that you're thinking, well, I wish you would have said that first. Just, just email me. 
We only have, unless you want to be here for four hours, I can go through every verse. We can get it all done. But I want to eat. I know you want to eat. Um, so I'm just going to cover as much as I can. But if you have questions, just email me. Email any of the elders. We want to try to answer whatever we can about this. Like, I'm not going to be able to get into a lot of the nuances and differences between this passage and Jesus when Jesus talks about divorce. A lot of times when we think about divorce, people run to this text and go, see what Paul says? But they don't realize the context of what Paul's addressing. He's addressing people who are getting divorced all willy-nilly because they're not having marriage, marital intimacy. They're ignoring the marriage bed, so people are getting separated. Jesus is addressing an instance of sexual immorality. Paul's not addressing sexual immorality because, really, none of it's happening. <laughs> they're, they're not, there's no immorality. There's nothing sexual even happening in the Corinthian church. This is why they're getting divorced. So we won't be able to get into all of that, but here's what we will be able to get into. What Paul's goal is, whatever season of life you're in, how do we honor Jesus? This is what Paul's after. So he first addresses single, engaged, and the widowed. How do we honor Jesus in this season of life? Look at verse six. Now, as a concession, Paul says, not a command, I say this. What great pastoral heart. His thoughts, his preferences, he's not laying them on us as chains. He's not laying them on us as his commands, but as counsel. Look what he says. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. So Paul says, I wish everybody were like me, single. He was single. We don't know if it was, he was married and his spouse died or if his spouse abandoned him or if he never got married. We don't know. But he does wish that everyone were single like him, but he recognizes God has varying plans for all of us. Look at what he says in verse eight. I'm sorry, verse seven. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And this is where typically you hear the phrase, the gift of singleness. Who's ever heard that phrase growing up? The gift of singleness. I remember growing up in the youth group in the 90s in the student ministry and just praying, God, please don't give me the gift of singleness. <laughs> As though this is like the Christian boogeyman. This is, I don't think this is what Paul's teaching. And I don't really think there is some kind of, you have the gift of singleness and it's irrevocable. Like it's a birthmark. You got it. It's there forever. I don't think that's the way it is. It really, if you follow Paul's logic in verse 7, I wish everyone were single like I am, but each has his own gift from God. And then who does he address next? The single and the widows. And then the married. Paul's addressing everyone, saying, these are all gifts from God. To be single is a season, a gift from God that you're in. To be married is a season, it's a gift from God that you're in. And to be widowed. Paul would even say, this is a varying kind of season of gift that God gives so there's not just the gift of singleness. Every stage of life that we're in, the Lord has assigned to us. And it's a gift from him. And he wants to address singleness first. Hence its own unique gifts. Look what he says in verse eight. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. It's good. Sadly, this is not a popular teaching you hear a lot. You hear a lot of times, people gotta get married, just get married, get married. And there, there is some there at that is good. But there's also, we must pause and say, you know, singleness is good. But how? And I understand why a lot of Christians, Christian culture, we don't think singleness is good because of the first couple of chapters in the Bible. What happens? There's a man in the garden, Adam's in the garden, and what does God say? It is not good for him to be alone. So how do these work? I mean, this is immediately where my mind goes. How is it good, Paul? It's not good for Adam. Okay, well, here's what we can say. We know it's not good for that man in the garden to be alone. If he's alone, we're not here. <laughs> there is no human race, boom, done, over. Not good for that man to be alone. 
Okay, but we used to all see, man, you got to get married. You got to have adult supervision. You need a wife. Like all, we like kind of say these kinds of jokes all the time. But this is not what the scriptures are intending or teaching. Those are, that, those are not contradictory. How do we see it from another angle? To be single as a Christian does not mean you are alone. There's a difference between being alone and being lonely. Those are not the same. Adam was not lonely in the garden. He was walked with the Lord. And to be a Christian single doesn't mean you're lonely. You don't have to be lonely. You have the church, the risen Lord Jesus. You have Jesus himself. You have your brothers and sisters. You have family. And for Paul to say singleness is good doesn't mean that everything else is bad. That's another thing we hear. If he says that's good, that means everything else is bad. That's how a lot of American Christians we think. We think very microscopically. We think very narrowly and not panoramically enough. Like if I say it is so good to be a dad, that doesn't mean that being a mom is bad. So sometimes we read the Bible, we just have like this weird logic system when we read. It's very illogical. To say, man, it's so good being a dad doesn't mean it's not good to be an uncle or to be an aunt or to be a grandparent. What Paul is doing is Paul is affirming singleness when often cultures do not. Where people would be seen as second-class citizens. They would be seen as some kind of funky, weird socio person. who They must be single. They're single because they're weird. Or so. That's in every culture where singles are not valued and prized, but it's in the church of the Lord Jesus where he says, no, everyone, everyone's valued. To be single is good. So how is it good? How? It's not good in the way the American culture thinks singleness is good and the way every popular TV show thinks singleness is good. I can do whatever I want. I can watch whatever I want. That is not good for you. I can eat whatever I want. I can wear whatever I want. See, it's all about, I can, I can do whatever I want. That is bad for your soul to always get whatever you want. It reinforces your sin and your selfishness and your pride. That's not how Christian singles should evaluate singleness. And let me pause and say why this matters to all of us. So some of us might think, okay, I'm married. Why do I need to hear this? You, we all need to hear this because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for rebuke, for correction and training and righteousness so that you may be equipped for every good work. You are hearing this so you can help your single brothers and sisters in Christ. You are hearing this so that you can help train up your children. You are hearing this so that you can serve your brothers and sisters and that maybe you might be in this stage one day. You're being prepared. You're being prepared to serve. This is why we all need this. So how can singles, how can singleness be gloriously good? Look at verse 32. Here's how Paul answers it. Verse 32. Here's how singleness can be gloriously good. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. He's using that word as cares and and heavy concerns. The unmarried man, the single man, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed or engaged woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Here's how, here's how Paul says it's so good. Singles, you are more free than married people to make much of Jesus. You are more freed up to exalt him and glorify him than married people. And this is not a lot of the way churches think. We think that married people are the ones who can finally do significant ministry. Paul says, no, single people can do major significant ministry. Because married people, your responsibilities and anxieties, they get doubled and tripled. Your stresses, your worries, your concerns, they get multiplied. You got to take care of your spouse. When Paul says that the wife has to take care of, 
you know, she's concerned about worldly things, caring for her husband. That's not like, that's a bad thing to do. He's saying, no, these are earth activities you have to do. These are things of the world. Going to the grocery store and buying a bunch of groceries, that's just the thing you got to do. So Paul says, when you have that, you have more kids, you have spouse, laundry. Oh, man, this is like a never-ending battle. I just watch Natalie do it every week, and it's like, oh. But I do the dishes, and she's like, oh, this is horrible. You got to do it all the time. I feel like when, I, when I'm home with my kids, and I'm, I'm watching them, and it's, I'm, it's my day with them, and I'm just like, my goodness, I feel like a short-order cook. I'm just, okay, you want chocolate milk, you don't want chocolate milk, you like pepper on your eggs, you don't like pepper, you're all getting the same thing. And I'm just eating like crust for lunch, you know, from leftover sandwiches. You're single. Your, your pressures and your concerns, your responsibilities, they're a lot lighter. You are freed up to make much of Jesus in ways that married people cannot. You can live in an unhindered way for the fame of his name. And Paul is a prime example of that. He could travel with no concerns. He could be shipwrecked with no concerns for anyone back home. Every time I get on a plane and I go somewhere for ministry, I think, Lord, please don't let me die. I have a family. I don't want to die yet. Let us all be together and die. That would be great. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, you just have these pressures, and they're just real. You, just, you have to deal with them. But Paul, he can get beaten countless times, no concern. Going to cities after they just stoned him, I'm going back, no concern. So singles should feel empowered to do radically bold things for Christ. This is Paul's line of reason. This is how singleness is gloriously good. So singles and unmarried and, and, and widows and widowers, Paul speaks to you as a fellow single person. I think he would say to you, we are single and this season, this gift of life, our chief concerns are the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. How to make much of the Lord. So is that the chief concern of your life? How can I make much of Jesus as a single person? Married people have the same questions and the same answers, but they're going to be, they're going to look a lot different. How can I serve more? How can I evangelize more? How can I go to the nations more? Now, if you're single and you do want to get married, what would be horrible right now in this moment is to hear these verses and think, oh man, I do want to get married, but I guess I could do so much for Jesus. I guess I should stay single you would be falling into the exact trap the Corinthians are falling into. And here's what, here's what drives me, it just blows me away. So in Corinth, they're thinking singleness is better, singleness is better, and Paul, what does he do? He doesn't say singleness is bad. That would be my response. No, singleness is bad. And especially if we have legalistic tendencies, legalistic background, we would say things, we would not even dare to say singleness is good. Being in fear of, people would chase it more. But Paul doesn't bow down to that. Paul's not worried about their legalistic interpretations. He's not worried about how they might twist his words. He says, let me just tell you what's biblical. Let me get back to what's biblical. Because I feel like in the Bible Belt, something like this was happening. People would go, don't tell them singleness is good. They're going to keep staying single. Don't teach them about grace. They're going to sin more. You see these kinds of things? But Paul says, no, let's go. What's biblical. And this is where all we must go. What is biblical? This is, Paul's not trying to give us some kind of gospel guilt trip of such a horrible satanic thing. It does exist where you could be guilted into not wanting to get married because you could, do, you could go on more mission trips. That's not biblical. What does Paul say? Verse 35. I say this for your own benefit. I'm just trying to help you. I'm not trying to lay any restraint. I'm not trying to put any chains on you, but I want to promote good order in your life for what? To secure undivided devotion to the Lord. This is what Paul's after. 
undivided devotion to the Lord. And this applies to all of us. I just want us to pause here and think about these words, undivided devotion to the Lord. These words come to us from Paul, yes, but in the authority of the risen Christ right now. When we hear these words, it is as though Jesus is speaking right to us. So we need to step back and sit and think, Jesus wants me to have unhindered, undivided, non-competing devotion to him. That's what he's asked for, for me, for you right now. The phrase occurs twice, please the Lord in this little section. And then he ends it with undivided devotion to the Lord. And we've heard this phrase growing up, at least I did when I was being, growing up as a little boy. My father would speak to me or my mother would speak to me, Jeffrey, I need your undivided attention. Did you ever hear that growing up? I need your undivided, look at me, I need your undivided, no, stop, stop fiddling with that. I need your undivided attention. And really as adults, this is the same thing that Jesus is saying to us, gently calling us, saying no. You need, you need an undivided devotion to me. This is Christianity. Undivided devotion to Jesus. This, this is faith. Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is inviting us, saying, will you have undivided devotion to me? How is your devotion to Christ? Because Jesus died for your sins. To even the thought of really thinking Jesus of Nazareth really died for my sins, for my falling short of God's commands, for my falling short of what God required, that I am a complete and utter failure in my life. But Jesus said, I will save you. I will give you new life. I will take the wrath of God in your place for my, for my people. I will do this. And he rose again from the dead. And we don't have to buy it. We don't have to even earn it. Jesus says, just by faith in me, I will give it to you. I will give you new life. You will be freed and I will make you a co-heir with all that is mine. That is Christianity. And because that is true, and because you believe that that happened to you, Jesus is reminding us, have undivided devotion to me. Are you all in with Jesus? You might respect him. You might even think well of him. But is your life devoted to him? Are you really devoted to him? Maybe today's the day. Maybe today is the day that you repent of your sins and you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Is Jesus real to you? This is what we're all facing every moment of life. This is what singles are facing right now today because of this passage. How real is Jesus amidst my singleness? How real is Jesus amidst my marriage. Because Jesus is alive, how will I live? So every single should be asking, how will I make much of Jesus now that I'm single? Now look at verse eight. So maybe you do want to get married. You're single, okay, I'm single, but I do want to get married. Well, this is verse nine. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
If you're single, you're dating, you're widow, you're engaged, here's what Jesus is telling us. If you're sitting there going, you know, I, I recognize singleness is good, but I desire to be married. I, 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 I burn with, like what Paul's saying, I burn with passion. I want that in my life. Paul says, great, that's good. Look towards getting married. If, you, if you're thinking, I really want that in my life, I feel like the Lord, I, just, I, I would desire that. If you really do desire that, I trust the Lord will bring that into your life in due season. But it should not be an idol for you. It should not be something that you obsess over. And if that's true, if you're a believer, so that means, just because you burn with passion, here's what it means. It means no fooling around. Pornography, no fornication, marriage only. And if you're tempted, or if you have sinned, you've crossed those lines that you, we know are for marriage only, we confess our sins to Christ. There was no one in this room who was unforgivable. There is no sin in this room that has been committed that is not able to be dipped and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's by his wounds we're healed. So you hear that and you want to get married. What does Paul say? His counsel, get married. Look at verse 39. One caveat though, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. What? You're free to marry who you wish. With one, one asterisk, only in the Lord. Christian only. This is the counsel from Christ. You are to be married to Christians only, only in the Lord. Now, Paul is going to talk about those who are married to unbelievers, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes. But you're, you're wanting to date, you're, you're looking your eyes, only in the Lord. And sometimes I'll get asked, well, what about if we have different theologies? You know, we have different beliefs about this or that. Paul doesn't, that's no concern to Paul. Only in the Lord. Oh, you know, I grew up Baptist. She grew up, you know, this or that, or Methodist. I don't know if we're going to be simpatico. Is Jesus Lord or not? You can make it work. You figure it out. Just, you need to just die to a lot of sin. And you'll figure it out, like every marriage. <laughs> die to self and you'll figure it out. So if you're single, listen, and we, those of us who disciple single people, encourage single people, we have single people in our lives, here's what we need to encourage them in. Always look to those who are in the Lord. No missionary dating. Lost your, that cutie in your economics class is not a people group for you to go evangelize via dating. Well, I think they are. You know, he, he has a Jesus fish on his car, so he must be... Listen, no, only in the Lord. Some that you know, they're believers. They're, they have fruit in their life. They love the Lord Jesus. It's evident. It's, it's clear. Go for it. And I get asked too, and we should, we should help our brothers and sisters. They'll ask, well, how do I meet other people like this? How do I meet them? Listen, as long as it's not sinful, go for it. Go for it. These websites, dating websites, go for them. Get on all of them and find them. I have family and friends. They're finding their, their spouse on there. Man, awesome. I know people thought it was kind of weird at the beginning. It's not weird. Just go for it. And bookstores, if those still exist, go find them. I don't know. <laughs> PetSmart, anywhere. Farmers only. I mean, any of these things. <laughs> Just only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Don't be a serial dater forever. Don't be engaged forever because Paul's saying if you're burning with passion, when something's burning, you don't take your time, okay? When something's burning, you don't take your time. 
Man, that toast is burning. I wonder if it's just going to fizzle out. <laughs> no, you, you get ready. You take steps. And the engaged people in Corinth, they were putting things on hold. Well, if it's more spiritual to not be married, to not have the marriage bed, I guess we should just, let's freeze this. Let's put this on hold. And so they're putting things on lockdown. And look at verse 36. Look what Paul says. So if anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed. So this guy's starting to realize, I don't think I'm doing this engagement thing right. I think I'm kind of like stringing her along. And then maybe if his passions are strong, and it has to be, maybe they're crossing lines. Maybe they're doing things they should not be doing. Paul says, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. It's amazing how like we hear that and we go, duh. Of course it's not a sin to get married. But that was not clear in Corinth because that one sentence. Guys, I cannot stress how important correct biblical thinking is. One sentence is all it needs to begin to spin your life in crazy directions. All it took was one sentence from the serpent to Adam and Eve. All it takes is one sentence for you and for me. So Paul says, no, you're not going to be sinning. You're not going to be less spiritual if you get married. Burning with passion when you're engaged, when you're dating, long engagements, they can be a recipe for disaster. It is just making more opportunities and more provisions for the flesh. And so I just want to give a word to parents. Don't let American economics become the standard for marriage. Will they make it? They don't have enough money. They need more experience. He doesn't have a good enough job. She needs to finish school. Don't don't let those things become major deciding factors for you. And just think about your life. Do you remember what it was like when you got married? Were you Uncle Scrooge swimming in your vault of coins? No. And go back even further. You remember that people got married during the Great Depression. If people can get married during the Great Depression, they can make it in the 21st century in Houston, of all places. Just don't let the American vision of making it become more important than the potential for them to commit fornication. You got two young people burning with passion, want to get married, and you keep putting a wedge in front of them. I think I would say, if I was counseling the scenario, I would say, parent, you got to get behind them. And if that were my daughter, and she's like, this guy's a believer. We really love each other. I think we're, we're going to get married, and we want to, but I just suck. I know I, you want me to finish school, and his job, he doesn't have enough money. He doesn't make as much as you guys, blah, 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 whatever. I would say, dear, we will help you. I will still give you cash. It is more important for me that you are holy in your life, that you do not commit fornication, and I'll keep paying your cell phone bill. Don't worry about it. You know, I mean, like, if, if that's where we're going to get to. What's more important, honoring Christ or honoring this American idea of what marriage really is? If you're single, widowed, widower, what I love about this passage, this is amazing to me. Jesus cares about your life. He cares about every area of our lives. He speaks to the married, the singles, the engaged, and the widowed. Jesus cares about every area of our lives. Let's go to him. Let's get his counsel. Let's learn from him. Let's walk in a way to honor him because he wants what is best for us. And he has what is best for us in his word. So honor Jesus as your single, engaged, widowed, and married people honoring Jesus when you're married. What does Paul say? Look at verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And that little phrase means, he says, I'm... I'm saying this 
But this is something Jesus has already said. And when he says later, I say this, I, not the Lord, he's saying, I'm saying this. This isn't something Jesus said before, but it's still true because I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm speaking in his authority. That's what those phrases mean, okay? Now, 10. To the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul's saying, don't abandon your marriage. Now, remember what's happening in Corinth. This is important to understand in this whole chapter. People are beginning to think it's better to not have marital intimacy, so let's just dissolve our marriages. In Corinth, you could literally just utter a Latin phrase in the presence of a witness, and then your divorce is done. Like Michael Scott, just declaring bankruptcy. I declare bankruptcy, it's done. No, that's not how it works. And Paul says this is not how it works. Now, Paul, and we don't have time to get into all this the way that Jesus speaks of divorce in Matthew 19, but in this scenario, Paul is saying, this is not the way marriage works. So what should we do? What should we be doing? Well, one, if you're married, if you have in the back of your mind that there is kind of a nuclear option for your marriage, you need to repent of that now. You need to confess that to Christ, repent of it. We should be doing all we can to preserve our marriages and to see our spouses flourish, to outdo one another in showing honor, to consider others more important than ourselves, to, to, for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and for the wives to submit and to respect her husband as, as the church does to Christ. I think this is, what, this is how this applies to us. We should be doing all we can to strengthen and fortify and solidify and to see our marriages flourish. And then Paul speaks to those who are married to unbelievers. Look at what he says in verse 12. To the rest, I say, well, the rest, well, the rest of the married people, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever she, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So you could see how someone in Corinth giving this weird teaching that's taking traction in the church that if someone had an unbelieving spouse and they felt like, you know, maybe we should divorce. I'm a Christian. They're not a Christian. Is that making me dirty? Because we, we are together. and man, This is just weird. You could see how someone would feel like an odd Christian. They would feel like a lesser Christian. And sadly, you can see how that happens today. And Jesus doesn't want any of that in his church. He doesn't want anyone to feel like any kind of second-class, second-tier, odd Christian. What Paul would say to those of you who are married to unbelievers, and I know we have some, Paul's saying to you, no, don't you see that your presence there is changing their life? They're coming into contact with the activity of God. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the risen Christ is now around them because you are around them. And this is why he says at the end in verses 15, 16, do you not know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And husband, do you not know that whether or not you will save your wife? You change the climate of the entire home by your presence there. He talks about your children are now being encountering the things that are holy. They are now, your children who probably were not going to be hearing the gospel are now are hearing about Jesus. And maybe they've become believers and it's because the Lord is using you. Because of your influence, because of your parenting. And I think most of what, we, of what I see in our church, I think, is we have ladies who are married to unbelievers. And ladies, 
You are a powerful woman. That is you. I, I'm blown away by you. Be encouraged. You are a strong woman in Christ. You're faithful to Jesus. He sees you. Oftentimes you feel like you're doing this alone. I can imagine how difficult it would be in those scenarios at times, but the Lord is with you. He will honor your humility and your devotion to him. The Lord is with you, and we are with you. And I'm sure conversations, I, I, I want conversations to happen. How could our church better serve you? Maybe we're not doing a good enough job. Maybe our community needs to get together more behind you and serve you and support you. Let those conversations begin now because we're all in this together. This is why we all need to hear these passages because we all have each other's burdens. We all have each other's spiritual backs. We're all together. All of us, single, married, widowed. Jesus wants all of us to live with an eternal mindset. This is what he says. Paul's teaching us that singleness and marriage, they're good, but we must remember what is ultimately good. Eternity looms for all of us. Look at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. So from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Man, that's a weird verse. We'll talk about it. 30. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? For the present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul saying? I mean, I have a real wife. We have a legitimate wife, right? Certificate, everything, we're good. We're together. A real wife. What is Paul saying? Live as though you don't have one. And that's not all he says. You have dealings with the world, business, as though you don't. Those who buy, you're going to buy groceries. Live as though you don't. So he's saying, have these things, do these things, but live as though you don't. The section isn't saying, just do whatever you want. Live however you want. What, what he's really saying is, live with eternity in mind. You have a wife, but remember, you won't forever. You're buying things with the world. Remember, you won't forever. I said it last week. You, when, you're, when we're in the New Jerusalem 20 trillion years from now, you're not going to wish you would have bought the sea dew. So don't act like, oh, if I don't get that sea dew now, my life stinks. That's not reality. Live with eternity is mine. I won't have a wife forever. Natalie, like, and I think Paul is meant to do this. It bums me out to think, man, we're not going to be married forever. I love hanging out with her. So she's not ultimate in my life. Marriage is not ultimate in your life. Jesus is. And we will glorify Jesus together forever. And we'll be with Jesus together forever. For the appointed time has grown short. So let's live now how to honor the Lord. Let's live now how to please the Lord. Let's all be anxious together, to use Paul's phrase, about the things of the Lord. This present world is passing away, and a new world is coming around the corner. Marriage isn't the overarching, defining attribute of your life. Jesus is. Jesus is the all-surpassing treasure. And are you mourning? Maybe you're burdened, brokenhearted, sad, worried. Jesus invites you 
to have faith in his future grace to come. And we have a lot of sickness in our church. And the women in this church, it's amazing. It's all women right now that are really sick. They're all looking to the future. They're amazing women. Do you know Jesus? That's the only way eternity is any comfort. If you know Jesus, the one who is not a pile of bone dust right now, but the one who is reigning and ruling on his throne as the king of glory and grace. The whole concept here, live as though you don't, is another way to sum up what Paul says in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I have, I count it as loss. All these things I have, all these great things in my life, I count them all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the upward goal and prize of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let those who are mature think this way. And in anything else that you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I am often told of you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're single, there's an upward call, a prize of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, and the power of his resurrection. Whether you're married, there's an upward prize to come, the goal to attain the resurrection from the dead of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. You're engaged, widowed, there's a greater prize, the upward call of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and attaining the resurrection of the dead from which we await a Savior. And let's go to that Savior. He has given us the right teaching, the right coordinates, the right directions to put into our lives so we don't take wrong turns, so we don't do all the wrong things, but he's given us insight into the resurrected life with him. Let's go to him. And he will lead us toward glory. It's in his mighty name that we need to pray. Let's pray. If you're serving communion today, I invite you to, to come up, band. You can come up too. Now, Lord, we come in your mighty name. Would you help the singles here to live in a way that is looking to make much of you above all? to walk with you and to honor you in all of life. And Lord, would you help those of us who are married to live in a way where you are our prize, where you are valued, where you are praised, and we seek to make much of you above all. Would you bring the reality of the new heavens and the new earth and eternity with you? Would it be so present among us 
with every breath and every step, we are getting closer and closer to that eternal glory that is to come. And so now, Lord, all of us with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, would you continue to transform us from one degree of glory to another so that we may gather with all the saints and proclaim, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And worthy are you, Christ. And it's in your mighty name, resurrected name, that we pray. Amen.